Welcome to Writer's Tricks. Welcome to Writer's Tricks of the Trade. I'm Morgan St. James. Tonight, authors Dennis N. Griffin, Eric Miller, and I will share how you can use your own experiences and emotions to breathe life into your fictional characters. One of the most important qualities a character can possess is feeling real to the reader. That's where writers should tap into their bank of personal experiences and emotions. Remember, the reader sees events through the eyes of the players in the story. So at all costs, avoid moving characters through the scenes who seem like paper dolls or overblown figures. Yeah, that's right, Benny. You know, in some books, the characters feel so real to you that you want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with them. <laughs> or, you know, you want to put your arms around, they'll offer comfort if they're hurting or help them if they're in distress. You know what I mean? And then in others, you couldn't care less. You know I mean? What? It, it's just that I think that's what makes the difference between good and, and great writing. Morgan, when you and Denny were writing La Bella Mafia, didn't uh, Bella Capo's story, you worked directly with her, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, so and so did Denny. Oh, yeah, you both did, right? So she related her emotions and her experiences firsthand, but how were you able to interject your own feelings to help her capture you know, the the hearts of her readers. Well, Bill is a very strong person. And because of everything she went through in her life, um, it included surviving extreme childhood abuse, being stalked by her ex-husband with death threats. And because of all that, she continues to battle with PTSD. So I think this is a good example of using your own emotions and your own experiences to translate the feelings, whether it's fiction or it's true, as in this case it was true. Um, I myself have had PTSD from a severe auto accident that could have killed me. And so I knew how those fears and the night terrors and the feeling you might be going crazy and more feel. Um, it's kind of hard to put that into words if you haven't been there and done that yourself. And I was able to put myself in her shoes in many of those scenes. And I drew upon what I personally experienced uh, to put those emotions and the physical reactions into the manuscript. And although mine was mild PTSD uh, compared to hers, and I have gotten over the majority of it, this happened many years ago, but at times okay. the two of us would actually be crying on the phone while I was typing because I was channeling what she was telling me. I mean, I just felt every single thing that she was talking about. And people who've read the book say it grabs their heart and it doesn't let go. And that's just one of the many ways your own emotions and experiences can come into play. Let's assume this was fiction. Same things work. No, that's a great example. I mean, you know, the the, the struggle with any disease and then recovering from it and and you're always doubting whether or not you're, you know, relapsing or anything. You know, it's just those kind of experiences are in, invaluable. Now, Denny, in your experiences in law enforcement, that, that must have been of great value when, when you were writing true crime, right? Why don't, why don't you tell us how you've, uh, you know, sort of transferred some of those experiences and emotions into your characters on both sides of the law? Well, it's it's interesting, Eric, for me. I started out writing mystery thriller fiction, and 
when I did my characters, I, I uh, did a male-female team of homicide investigators, Las Vegas Metro homicide investigators, for example, and I, I based those characters on people I had actually worked with. And I based these cases and scenarios that were in the books. I did a, a three three books featuring these uh, same two detectives. And in all of them, I used cases or factors from cases that were actually in the news that I had read about, that I had seen on television and so forth. And as far as the questioning and interrogating and some of the uh, steps that the detectives followed uh, were steps I had done myself. And I I knew uh, how to go about trying to get certain information and find out certain things. So that I certainly couldn't have done those books without my utilizing my background. And then when I went to uh, to true crime, uh, I was helped very much dealing with former lawmen and former mob figures in some cases that I spoke the language, if you will. Uh, I understood what, the, what, what they were telling me when they were relating different stories and different events. And I think because of that, I was able to uh, adequately write their feelings and their techniques and their steps and their emotions and all that into my true crime books. So I, I think my background and experiences have uh, helped me greatly in both fiction and nonfiction. Um, can I interject something here, too, because Denny and I are just finishing up a book that we're writing together called Bumping Off Fat Vinny, and once again, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor old Vinny, he's got nine lives. Uh, <laughs> But once again, Denny's law enforcement background be, uh, came in handy because in some of the scenes, we really needed to know the procedural side of things, even though it is a uh, funny crime fiction. Yeah, well, so when so when both of you or either of you are tapping into your memory for those adjectives and adverbs and metaphors and similes, they all become sort of your friends of being able to sort of tell the story, right, as, as long as they aren't overused. Um, yeah, you bet. Um, actually, I've even given a workshop on um, drawing picture words with pictures because the words you use should evoke images in the mind of the reader. And the problem is if the writer overuses adjectives and adverbs, it actually has the reverse effect. And what happens, instead of punching something up, it works in the completely opposite way. Now, when you come to similes and metaphors, that's another story. And for people who don't know what similes and metaphors are, it's a comparison uh, type of thing. With a simile, it's something was like something else. And with a metaphor, you refer to something else. But if you sprinkle them in the right places, that sparks the reader's imagination because it gives them something they can grab onto, something they can picture, and allows them to draw parallels with familiar images and see them in their mind's eye. Here's the caveat. You overuse them, and everything gets minimized. And the problem is that with each new sprouting of a simile or a metaphor or more adjectives or adverbs than should ever be huddled together in the same sentence, 
the reader begins to lose interest. As a matter of fact, I recall a book I once read where almost every other paragraph had some sort of a simile. Finally, I just couldn't endure it anymore. I thought, not one more, not one more. This is like this, this is like that, no. And I closed the book and I never opened it again. And the sad part of that story is that the book had a good storyline, but I never got past the first several chapters because I got so sick and tired of every other paragraph having a simile. Now, similes, metaphors, and emotional uh, physical reactions draw graphic pictures for your reader. And that's where your own memories come into play. For example, you may never have been held up at gunpoint, but maybe you were in a serious accident or other threatening experience. Your emotions and physical reactions would be similar. Maybe you were fainted and remember the feeling of the double vision, cold sweat, possible stomach ache, the black, and waking up with people hovering over you. And you have to let your character feel that and convey that to the reader. Well, as you two were speaking, speaking, I was kind of picturing some of those things, and I definitely agree with what you're saying. I know, um, you know, the writers of Southern Nevada has this series that they've started here in 2015 called Painted Stories, and we literally have readers come up and read in front of a live audience as a artist is sitting in front of the audience and uses their words as inspiration. So literally the words get painted onto the page. It's pretty cool. Um, thing that we're doing here in Las Vegas. But so often, you know, those images are fleeting. They they move from scene to scene. They change from scene to scene. Like Morgan just said, sometimes it can change too much <laughs> from scene to scene. <laughs> How do you harness them to pull them back when you need to? Well, you know, there are some impressions that are with you forever. Like when I was talking about the PTSD. I will never, ever forget the experience of being hit broadside in the driver's door at 40 miles an hour by another car and spinning and spinning and finally realizing I was alive. Now, I've used that in a book, too, because it's really highly emotional, you know, and so, you know, that's that's something that I'll never forget, so I don't have to worry about remembering it. Um, but then, for example, in, in another book, I used a term that this person's blonde hair was wrapped around her shoulders like a golden shawl. And, you know, that draws a much better image than saying her straight blonde hair. But the thing is, I clearly pictured one of my former business partners when I had an interior design firm. I envied her hair. (laughs) She had, like, the perfect blonde hair. And it always reminded me of a silky golden shawl. So... You know, that's another one of the things that I really remember. But now when it comes down to other things, like something you've seen in passing, um, something you experienced but you're not sure you'll remember it, for those things, making notes the old-fashioned way in a little notebook, or if you're completely techy, putting it into your computer or your tablet or your your phone, um, in a file of things you want to remember is a great way. Now, I've... Maybe I'm an old horse. I don't know. You know, I use all the digital things. I use the laptop. I use the tablet. I use the phone. But I still find that if I have a little written notebook, I can refer to it very quickly. I don't have to go scrolling through things. I don't have to remember how I saved it. All I have to do is look in the notebook to pull it back. 
So if you're really organized, then you can separate these things that you want to remember to use in a book sometime, separate them into categories so they'll be easier to find. You know, maybe it's like, let's say you see an old woman struggling to push her shopping cart across the street. Take a really good look at her physical characteristics. Notice how she's dealing with her challenge because when it comes time to remember those things, if you've jotted down a couple of notes and it draws back the picture of what you saw, you can realistically have an old woman struggling with something, and it doesn't have to be pushing a shopping cart across the street, but you'll have noticed her body language. You'll have noticed the expression on her face. You'll have noticed if anybody around her is offering to help. And when you jot those things down, the things that could be useful in a book or a story, um, you're writing an old woman, you flip to your book, oh, yeah, that's what she looked like, sure. Yeah, she has to kind of drag her foot along. She has to get this grimace on her face as she's pushing whatever she's pushing. And those are the things that make your characters spring to life because you've given them life. You've given them what you saw in somebody who was real or what you felt yourself and transferred it to your character. I think that's an and, excellent point. It seems like there's a little joke maybe that might be in there. It's like, how how can you tell when you're in a neighborhood full of writers? You know, it's because <laughs> they're all taking not notes. They're all taking notes as the old ladies pushing their cart across the street because no one's coming to help her. They're just all taking notes, you know, like, I must be in a neighborhood full of writers. You know, I need to interrupt you, Eric. On that note, you just talk about pulling back memories. This goes back a long, long time ago. And I hadn't really written anything, uh, published fiction yet at that time. And I was working, in between jobs, I was working a liquidation sale for RB Furniture Stores in California, which was a scam in itself. And the guy from the liquidation company would pace around like Patton addressing the troops. He had this little ponytail that was like an inch long, and um, he would just pace and, and be shouting out orders. You know, there's an army of T.O. people out on the floor, and you don't have to let any customer walk through the door and stuff like that. And I would be sitting there taking notes. And he would always say, now look at Morgan. See, she's listening to what I say. She's taking it all down so she can use it. He didn't know I was making notes because I wanted to write a book. (laughs) And I wanted to remember all the crap he was dishing out. (laughs) (laughs) So sorry I interrupted you, Eric, but I just had to share that. No, no, there's definitely, there's, there's a couple of jokes in there, you know, there's a couple of jokes in there lady pushing the cart, but there's also a lot of truth, too. Yeah. And, you know, if if I could uh, add briefly to what Morgan had just mentioned, I think it's very important that you allow your mind to wander when you're fleshing out actions or people in your book. Do the what-if exercise and see if memories suddenly pop into your head. Something that has really happened and can be reshaped to fit the scene is a great bonus because it will have the ring of reality. And as we've been saying, we want the reader to experience and live through our words the scenes that we're describing. So the more realistic the scenes are, I think, 
to everyone's benefit. Right. Well, here's a challenge for the both of you. Can you, can you think of an incident that you actually experienced, that you have experienced, <clears throat> translated to fit into a particular situation in one of your books? You know, if you can give us a brief overview of the incident and then how you used it, yeah, that I think that would be interesting to our, our listeners. Denny, why don't, why don't you start off with another example? Well, I will, but I'd like uh, Eric, with your permission, to use two incidents. Can I? Can I do two? Yeah. What are you going to give right? us? How much are you going to pay? <laughs> <laughs> what, well, what's the big? The the uh, the first one actually was um, I was doing one of my uh, one of my fictions, and uh, as I mentioned, uh, my. My three books about the the male female homicide detectives were set in Vegas, and I had to get uh, what part of the plot that I wanted to use involved a had to be a major confrontation in which the police shoot and kill a suspect, and um, I wasn't quite sure the best way to set that up, and then I remembered that when I was doing some police work in New York State, one of our big uh, potential uh, nights for high crime or for incidents to take place was New Year's Eve. Now, I never had was involved in a shooting personally on New Year's Eve or any other time as far as that goes. But what I did, I, I remember the atmosphere and how it was confronting or mingling with, if you will, or being close to a crowd of drunks, some of whom are not necessarily peaceful and uh, happy drunks. And I used those experiences to set them in Las Vegas on New Year's Eve, and my particular cops um, were assigned to Fremont Street by the Fremont Street experience. And I was able, I think, to do a pretty good job of creating although certainly Vegas was a much bigger venue than I worked in. But still the emotions were the same, and some of the characters you run into, I'm sure, are the same. So I use that experience. Uh, my experience is there to create my scene and my fiction uh, to set up the police shooting of a of a suspect that, that took place on New Year's Eve on Fremont Street. Um, the second thing was when I was working for New York State, I accepted a bribe as a, an undercover uh, assignment. Oh, I'm glad at you the, qualified that, then. Yes, I, <laughs> I thought I'd better. And at the time, for the particular area I was working, it was the largest bribe, at least, that was reported. Now, somebody may have gotten more and kept it, but as far as what was turned in, uh, anyway, it happened to be $10,000 in cash, and it was quite a quite an experience for me to get because I wasn't expecting that type of money when I when I was talking to this particular person and uh, I, what I what happened there totally by accident the the guy was going to pay me 5000 when we made our deal and 5000 when I completed what he was paying me to do and I had my microphone concealed in the knot of my necktie and he hands me all these $100 bills, and I'm counting them out, 
and they were new, and I'm counting them, and I'm counting them into my tie, uh, you know, <laughs> make sure they're, make sure everybody can hear me. So speak into the flower, I, please. Speak into the when I get done. There's 4,900, and I was legitimately irked. I said, "This son of a pup is trying to sabotage me or trying to rip me off for a hundred bucks." So I told him. I looked at him. And I said, "There's only 4,900 here." And he came around from his desk and took the money from me and counted it out into my necktie. Oh, so he knew what was going on. I had him in his own voice counting the bribe money. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I didn't do it intentionally. It turned out to be a great move. Guy, when I got back to the office and the the prosecutor, and they, they took the wire off, and played back the tape, they couldn't believe what a genius I was because I had this guy. I had this guy count the money out for me, and I never told him any different. I made him. I let him think I was pretty smart. But it, it, he probably it really thought you guy, were brilliant. <laughs> the guy ticked me off because I thought he was trying to short me. So um, did the mark, anyway, did, did the mark pop up the extra hundred bucks? Pardon me. Did the, did the mark did your did your target got did he cough up the extra hundred bucks? He didn't have to. The money's two two of the hundred stuck together. <laughs> so the money the money was all there all the time, and um, it was it was funny when I when I used that incident or a similar incident in the book. I had uh, I had my detective. Uh, I thought of another thing to do besides accusing the guy of shorting him. So I added a little something in that scene as well that the uh, that the detective did purely by accident that turned out to to go over very well with the you know when they when they played the tape back and uh, and really did the job for him. So those were two two incidents that I remember specifically that really worked out well in my writing. Yeah, those are those are powerful. Morgan, what about you? Do you have another one besides you know, the spinning? Oh, the yeah. Spinning the, the I got a million of them. <laughs> but I'll only give you one right now because I think we'll run out of time if I keep yakking. Um, I had, I, I've had a lot of uh, professions in my life, and, and a lot of them were involved with design sales. And um, in this particular instance, I'd been working with some very big projects and working with the top people in in large corporations. And I had to meet with one of the um, executives in the uh, contracting department at a major aerospace company. I won't mention the name of the company, but it was it's one that would be immediately recognizable. And so this this takes place, you know, like maybe 25, 30 years ago. And um, I got to say, I was pretty hot looking then. <laughs> Big head of auburn hair, you know, great figure. So I walk in, and this little twerpy guy that I'm meeting with, he's he's like a top executive, and he leans against his desk. He comes around to the front of his desk, and he leans against his desk. And he looks at me and he says, kind of puts his eyes half shut, and he goes, I'd really like to have sex with you. And I go, huh? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I looked at him and I said, what? 
no offer of coffee or of drink first? <laughs> the guy just about swallowed his teeth because he didn't expect that. And then, you know, I figured, well, the odds were I wasn't going to get this job anyway, <laughs> the way this thing started out. So I figured I didn't have any problems in really telling the guy off. And And I said to him, look, I said, I'm going to do you a big favor. I am not going to tell somebody that you have just propositioned me, and you have, and you know it. And I said, that is not a requisite for my getting this project. I said, now, what I want in exchange is I want you to promise that you will give me a fair shot at the project. And by that point, he was almost burbling, you know, because he knew I had him. And right. so he said, yeah, 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 um, uh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, and he goes back around the thing. I must have misunderstood. You're just an attractive woman, you know. And he was going on and on and on. And I said, can it? <laughs> I said, I came in here to make a presentation to you, and it wasn't a presentation of myself. I said, what I'm presenting is the project that we're talking about. So anyway, I didn't wind up getting the project, by the way. But when I was writing the book Ripoff, which is... What's that? I said, not with an attitude like that, but, you know, totally kidding. <laughs> no, no, but, I mean, well, actually, I, I probably had a good shot at the project, but the product that they finally decided upon, we couldn't supply. But anyway, so when I was writing Ripoff, it's about another personal experience that I had. It, well, it's not about it. It was inspired by it when... I was working with the um, federal prison system uh, with furniture manufactured in federal prisons that we could only sell to um, federal agencies. And the military was one of our, our big ones. And um, so I have a situation where all of these women have been hired to be the reps for the government uh, marketing department for this furniture made in prisons. And, you know, it's not like selling a desk here and a chair there. These were million-dollar projects, many of them. And so I have one of the um, sales reps who used to be an advertising executive, and she was down on her luck, and I have her telling her other two friends what happened, and it's exactly that incident about the guy propositioning her and her telling him, this and, and, and in that instance, you know, she walks away with a big order because he's a government employee and he has just propositioned somebody who is an employee of the federal prison system. <laughs> he knows that his uh, neck is in a noose if he doesn't do something, so he can't wait to give her a big order. That's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are so many of the funny ones. I, even the book that Denny and I are working on, I mean, it's it's not true. But it was inspired by some stuff that we experienced. You know, I I know we're getting short on time. Can I can I just mention real quickly a um, an incident that I wrote exactly as it happened in real life, and it but the reality was lost because of the subject matter. And I, very quickly, I, I wanted to tell the story of a case I had investigated regarding a medical examiner's office that was accused of stealing bodies. And when, when I first got the assignment, and, and they said body stealing, I'm thinking, I'm visualizing 
Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff Radium <laughs> Cemetery, you know, looking for medical specimens. But uh, uh, it turned out this particular office, medical examiner, was in fact stealing bodies, and that was a statute. Still was on the, I assume it still is on the books in New York. Anyway, um, and when I wrote the story of it after I retired. I wanted to tell it exactly like it was. I, I changed the name, so I fictionalized it, but I wanted to give all the details, and I did. I, just ex- I explained just exactly how he obtained the bodies, uh, what he did with them after he got them, uh, how the paperwork was handled uh, or actually falsified and so forth. And I got I remember I got an email from a guy who read the book, and he says, uh, he says, you know, he said, I got to give you credit. He says, you took, uh, created a situation that couldn't possibly happen and made it sound realistic. <laughs> <laughs> you probably thought he should only know. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I said, if you already knew, my friend. <laughs> well, well, you know that saying, the truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. Exactly, and yeah. I think more times than not, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there, like I said, there are just so many things where you, you feel these emotions, you, you lend them to your characters, you recall the details of certain situations that may not be exact, but they can fit into the scenario that you're creating, and if they don't exactly fit in, you tweak them a little bit, but the more reality that you can give to the situations and the characters the more you're going to pull that reader in and the more comments you're going to get about how they felt. You know, let me give you one more instance. We've got a few more minutes well, left. Yeah, um, well, we've got, you know, we've got a couple minutes. Not yeah. Well, I have to share with you guys, I actually scheduled this show for 15 extra minutes because I know oh. how we are when we start yakking. So we do have some time. And, right. I, you know, I wanted to mention um, one of my favorite mystery writers who, who writes sarcastic uh, character of Elvis Cole, Robert Craze. And he does a beautiful job of describing areas. And in the very first Robert Craze book that I read, he hooked me because he had his character actually walking down the street or driving down the street that I lived on in Marina Del Rey. And it was uh, a street that you could not have described unless you'd actually been there. So I knew he'd been there. Because on one side of the street, there were multi-million dollar homes. And on the other side was a townhouse complex um, just south of Washington. And the way he had his characters moving through this, I thought, my God, I feel like I'm walking on my street. I mean, he really knows this area. So then what does he do? He has his character drive up into the Hollywood Hills near Mulholland and Laurel Canyon, which is another place that I lived. And I thought, this guy's been following me, you know. (laughs) But once again, he described the area so beautifully that I felt I was there. And I knew that anybody who didn't know the area was going to be sucked in by his description because it was so real. So, you know, that's that's another comment on making your things feel real. That is, of course, unless you're writing fantasy. And even then, the things that you create in fantasy should have a ring of reality to them, should be something that a person can say, 
Yeah, you know, in another galaxy far away, I can imagine something like that happening instead of, oh, that's crazy, that would never happen. Well, even uh, to that, well, to that J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings and Hobbit fame, he completely wrote those, you know, fantasy, uh, I mean, how many, the Cimmerillion and a couple, I mean, about seven or eight books altogether, and it was he was describing bridges and mountains and hills on the Oxford University campus in Oxford, England. I mean, that's where he lived. That's where he had his, and and if you've ever been to Oxford and you walk along and you go, oh, my God, that's what he was describing. He was just, you know, describing a little right. babbling book is, but then making it bigger in his fantasy world. But these little, you know, he was sort of describing everything in miniature that was on the Oxford campus. It's just, it was just remarkable. Yeah, I actually have been to Oxford. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and it's, Tolkien, it's, my God, I have the original, uh, not the original, but I have the original reissue trilogy from the 1980s that somebody had wow. given me. Nice. Yeah, I have like a box set. Um, I was a big fan when I was in the, in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it really is a talent. It's it's a talent to draw pictures with words. And the more help that you have, the better you can do at it. And, and the help is your own experiences and your own emotions. That's right. Well, and with that, we should probably wrap up the show and um, wish everybody happy writing, right? Uh, yeah, that's probably a good thing. Our next show will be on April 22nd. And once again, it will be... Denny and Eric and me, and we will be discussing, I knew what we were going to be discussing, and I have totally lost my place, folks, so that shows that I'm human. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be, (laughs) it's going to be F for fact-finding. You know, how much does your reader really want to know? How much do you really have to say? the importance of researching the things that you do quote as reality, and a whole bunch more about fact-finding. So that's a show that you really should listen to. And until then, we'll say goodbye, drive safely, God bless everybody, and we'll see you around the corner. Okay, good good night. night.